God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to open up your word and to be shaped by it. God, I thank you for how practical your word is uh, in the nitty-gritty of everyday life. And so would you help us uh, to live as chosen exiles here in this world? Would you give me wisdom as I lead us through this passage? God, would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak? I pray humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, are you for or against fire? You're like, well, that's a weird question. It depends on how you're using the fire, right? Like, if my house is cold and I have a fireplace, I'm for it. I can put it in the fireplace. With, with fire, we can cook food and provide light in dark places. We can also build, uh, burn down buildings and forests. And we can hurt people and even kill people with fire, right? So should we be for or against fire? It's a silly question, right? But everybody understands that when you're dealing with fire, you should handle it carefully and appropriately. In the same way, should, should we be for or against authority? For or against leadership or the right or the ability to rule something? See, like fire, authority can be used either for great good or for great harm, can't it? Depending on how you're wired, you probably have a default when it comes to authority. Many of you are skeptical by nature, and when you think about authority, you tend to think immediately of the bad, how authority can be used to exploit and to hurt and and maybe that's shaped by the family that you grew up in, and maybe your parents' approach to that, or maybe it's shaped by having some encounters with people who are in authority over you that made your life miserable, or that used their authority for even abuse or horrific things. And so when you think about authority, you generally think about the negative things connected to it, and you, your default is it should be resisted. Uh, maybe others in here tend to view authority as inherently pretty good. Maybe your default is to, is to obey the rules and listen and obey. And maybe your life, you've had a relatively good experience with authority. And so you see clear lines of authority and structures as, as things that create safety and flourishing for you. But what's a Christian approach to authority? How should followers of Jesus respond to those in authority over us? And in particular, how should we respond to authority that is ungodly or sometimes bad? Remember, our identity, Peter has driven home in his letter, is that we are chosen exiles. We are chosen by God. We are privileged to receive an unbelievable inheritance in Jesus. We are now part of the new covenant people but we're also exiles and sojourners in this world. This world isn't our home, and so we live with this tension in our identity in that we are privileged and we are persecuted. We are chosen and we are rejected. And the issue that Peter brings up in the second half of chapter 2 is to instruct Christians how to respond to ungodly authority, or how to respond to human institutions of authority 
as those who are following Jesus first and foremost. Especially when it comes to human institutions like government or economic terms like masters and slaves or or the the familial authority of of a husband over a wife, especially if the wife is married to an unbeliever. These were incredibly practical questions for them. Now that might sound to you a little bit culturally distant. Like we don't have emperors anymore that we need to submit to. Uh, slavery has been all but abolished in most places in the world. Not completely. There's still horrific examples, but mostly. And women are no longer at the mercy of the whims of their husband without recourse. And so you could step back and say, today's passage is so irrelevant, Kyle. Why are we talking about it at all? And in one sense, you would be right. And in another sense, how to relate to ungodly authority over us is unbelievably relevant, isn't it? And how we respond as Christians is very practical for today. As we think about this issue of authority, I want you to memorize two words that kind of give us an overview. Submission and subversion. Submission and subversion. These words, I think, drive our right engagement with ungodly authority. When it comes to relating to authority as Christians, our, our default posture is to be one of submission. We are to make it easy on those who exercise authority over us. We are to honor and submit when we can, but also we are called as God's people to subversion. Our primary goal is not to submit, but instead to seek to do good to all and reflect the reality that God is our ultimate authority. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 13, and see if you can see those two ideas. Peter writes, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent to him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Submission and subversion. Let's look first at the idea of submission. 
Peter begins in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He's actually introducing, when he speaks of human institutions, of our relationship to a variety of things. And this section of Scripture goes to chapter 3, verse 8. But next week's topic is big enough on its own. I didn't want to tackle that today. In verses 13 to 17, he talks about our relationship as Christians to governing authority, the emperors, the governors that we find ourselves under. In in verses 18 to 20, he talks about economic authority or the relationship between slaves and their masters. In chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, he speaks of familial authority or the authority of a husband over his wife. And then in verse 21 and 25 of chapter 2, in the middle of all of that, he actually spends more time looking at the example of Jesus as the one that we are to emulate and follow as he does any of those individual relationships. And in all of these roles, he, he speaks actually to the ones who are under authority, not necessarily the ones who are in authority. And the default posture for a Christian, one who is living as a chosen exile in this world, is one of submission and honor to those in authority over us. And he summarizes this ideal in verse 17. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, Fear God, honor the emperor. Now, do you remember last week how when we looked at the identity of of us as God's people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his chosen race, a people that will declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, he gave us a framework for looking at ourselves in this world in verses 11 and 12. He said, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, as migrants and refugees, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are to live out our calling as Christians, as chosen exiles here, by submitting to the human institutions that have been placed over us. Even, Peter writes, the ungodly authority of the emperor. Now, does anybody know who the emperor was in Peter's day? It was a really nice guy by the name of Nero. I say that tongue-in-cheek because Nero was an unbelievably awful dude. He was an evil man who has far more power than any American president. And regardless of what you think of Biden or Trump, Nero was worse. We can agree on that. Nero is actually the man who would eventually have Peter, the author of this letter, executed for his allegiance to Jesus as Lord. But Peter writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors that are sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And at the end of this section, he says, fear God, but honor the emperor. Why does he say this? Because Peter is acknowledging even evil, unjust governments have a role to play in our lives. What is their role? Well, to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So the role of human civil governments is to to reward those who do the good and pursue the good, good, and to punish those who do evil and break the laws. Uh, Pastor Mark Deber, who pastors a church in Washington, D.C., says it this way, even a bad government is better than no government. 
Do you know that? Now, some of you guys are like, I don't know about that. No, even a bad government is better than no government at all because no government devolves into chaos. The strong rule and dominate the weak. If you can take it, you will. And there's no protection and no recourse. Some of you guys are like, that's exactly what our government does. The strong dominates the weak. But uh, we actually, in the history of the world, have it pretty good here. And I know that like headlines are written to make you think that everything in the world is falling apart and that you should live in fear. And the only solution or savior for that fear is whatever this candidate or this candidate says. Don't buy into that. That's not how it is. It's not that bad. No. If you have any thoughts about that. <laughs> even, even corrupt or evil governments at least restrain the most base and evil behaviors in our midst. And so because of that, the default posture of a Christian heart toward civil government is to be one of submission and honor. Now, what does that even mean? Does that mean like blind obedience and allegiance to them? Well, absolutely not. In fact, the person who is writing this himself defied human government and institutions back in Acts chapter 4. When the Sanhedrin, or the, the group of Jewish leaders that were responsible for the interpretation and application of the law, told Peter and John no longer to preach and teach in the name of Jesus, do you want to know what their response was? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Basically, you, you guys are crazy if you think we're going to listen to you rather than the clear command of God. And so submission to doesn't mean blind obedience or allegiance. In fact, listen to the word. In, in English language, we would say, let me submit this to you, or I submit this to the court. It's, it's basically acknowledging the authority above us, but giving our opinion or sharing what we think about it. See, as Christians, our primary citizenship and home is not this world. We are sojourners and exiles here. We are first citizens of a future kingdom that will come. And so Jesus, the king of that kingdom, is the one who has ultimate allegiance and rules our hearts. Notice it says here that we are to fear God, but to honor the emperor. We're not to fear the emperor and honor God, but rather fear God. Do you see the difference there? God is the one that we hold in awe. It is God that we tremble before and bow before. He has our hearts. He has our allegiance. Caesar, or the emperor, we treat with honor. So then what does submission mean here? Especially coming from one who willingly defies government authority over him. Peter says it means that we give them honor and respect as do their position. So notice he says we, we submit to the emperor as supreme and the governor as the enforcer of that. So there's different levels of allegiance that we owe, that we respect them, but under God. It, we, it means that we submit to them as long as it doesn't contradict our higher or greater authority and loyalty, which is to King Jesus. And just so you know, this approach actually got them into a lot of trouble. To declare that Jesus is Lord as opposed to Caesar is Lord would cost the Christians in Peter's day not only economically and socially, but many of them, it cost them their very life. Peter writes in 15 and 16, I think, what, what he aims at when it comes to subversion. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, 
but living as servants of God. Peter is declaring, you are free. You are more free than any citizens of the Roman Empire. But in your freedom, your primary objective is to use that freedom to do good. And so we're to use the freedom that we've been given as God's citizens, the sense of detachment, as it were, to do the good and to pursue the good and live as servants or slaves of God. See, sometimes the government gets it wrong. Big shocker, right? Their job is to reward the good and to punish the evil. But what do we do when the governing authority above us begins to reward evil and punish the good? Then, as Christians, we defy them. We subvert them by continuing to do what is good and serving our true king and true master. Now, let's talk about this for a little bit. The purpose of human government and authority is to reward good and to punish evil. And when they do that, it is a good thing. Our goal as ambassadors of another kingdom is to use our freedom and our detachment from that to to do good. Now, this normally aligns. And when it regularly aligns, we are to submit and to honor. And this is what happens, at least in a lot of places, most of the time. This is why we can, in good conscience, encourage fellow Christians to work in the government, to serve in positions of leadership, to seek positions of influence and leadership within our government in order to do good and to promote human flourishing, to promote just laws, and to reward and partner with initiatives that make our cities and our states and our nation a great place of flourishing and a great place to live, To, to work and enforce our laws and punish and prosecute lawbreakers and evildoers in order to protect the vulnerable. That's a good thing. And if you feel calling into that sphere, that is a good and godly vocation where you bring your faith and your discipleship to. Now, this is very different. We can acknowledge this is very different than the world that Peter lived in, isn't it? They didn't really get a say in who was the emperor, And they certainly wouldn't have picked Nero. And so in some ways, when that is just kind of established for you, to hear submission and subversion, it's actually a little bit clearer, isn't it? But what do we do when we actually have a say in the government ourselves? When we actually are a part of it, or we are voting for one type of government or another type of government, how is it different to submit and to subvert in that context? Oh man, I don't have a time to treat that fully. But if you're interested in a deeper dive in that, we actually did a whole seminar on that last summer that's on our website called Faith and Politics. And you are welcome to go there and be upset at Pastor Mike and Brett, uh, Brett Waybright who did that. Um, but to see kind of guiding principles for us as a church. But here, here's a few of them. We are to fear the Lord and hold him in awe. We're not to fear the government. We're to honor the government but ultimately serving him. In this way, we are free, but then in our freedom, we don't have to get all of the things that we need right now because there is a future kingdom that will come and we're citizens of that kingdom. And so now, in the here and now, we use our freedom to serve and to uphold the good in so many different ways. Can I just talk with you a little bit about authority and how it's both good and how it needs to be checked? In human history, 
There are kind of three realms, I would say, of, of God-ordained authority that you see in most cultures. There's the authority of the state or the government and its structures. There's the authority of the church or religion and its underlying structure. And then there's the authority structure of the family, okay? Now, there's other authorities as well that exist in our world. There's like economic authority, your relationship with your boss or your company, like you're under authority there. Or there's, if you're a student, there's educational authority, like under your teacher or your professor or your principal, like they give you a grade, like they make the rules. Or if you have the unfortunate occurrence of living in a housing association, you are under the housing association. That sounds awful, but that's a voluntary form of authority. But in general, when we think about authority, most it, it, it tends to be these three that kind of provide the big uh, structures for human society. And sometimes there's tension between the church and the state or the, or the family and the church or, or in these things. And, and I, I just would submit to you that that's actually a good thing, that they operate in different realms of authority. And in fact, if you go through human history, most ancient or modern atrocities that happen is when one uh, sphere of authority tries to squelch all the others. So for instance, when, the, when the, the, the authority of the state becomes prominent and they seek to either subvert the religious authority or to squelch the religious authority, you get things like Stalin's USSR or Mao's China or the Khmer Rouge that, that just absolutely bludgeoned Cambodia or you get, what happen, you, you get what happens in North Korea right now or Nazism in Germany. All of those regimes have left devastating effects when left unchecked by other authority. Do you see that? But the same thing can actually happen with religious authority or the church. Times when the church has tried to dominate other realms of authority, we, think, we see things like the Inquisition or the Crusades or the burning of heretics at the stake or um, the, the, the hunt for witches in, in, in the Northeast or... In modern history, the church not reporting sexual abuse to civil authorities and seeking to handle everything in-house, what happens in all of those things is that people get really hurt and devastated because there's a check and a balance in these realms of authority. Or, or every familial system of abuse, generally what you see at the core of it is a, is a crazy sense of control by either a father or a mother, usually one person, and, and they are the sole and only authority that exists for that family and that family structure. You get cults, you get all kinds of weird, twisted abuse when that happens. Now, do these tr atrocities mean that we get rid of any of those authorities? No, but it does show you how important it is that there are checks and balances. And as Christians who understand the depravity of mankind, the, the fallenness, the evil that exists, we don't trust anyone unequivocally. Anybody who's in authority should also be under authority in some way. That's a good thing. We know enough about ourselves. It doesn't mean that we mistrust all authority, but we do a little bit. Now, that was mostly Kyle talking about history and things like that, less the Bible there. But do you see what I'm talking about? This means that when, when something goes past, at least in a, in a broad sense, immorality into criminality, the church shouldn't handle that on its own. They're not equipped to do so. 
That means that, that when we talk about familial authority next week, that that is not an ultimate authority unto itself, but rather that family and their system should be submitting as church members and as citizens of a government, and that that tempers and um, shapes what that submission looks like. So, as, as people of God, we are called to submit and to subvert. We are to honor and serve so that we can use our freedom for the good. Now, verse 18 to 20 shifts from governmental authority to that of slaves and masters. The ESV translates slaves as servants, but I think it's best understood to be slavery because it was the slavery of the first century Roman world. Now, the reason I think they translate it that way is to try to distance it from the form of slavery that existed in our country not even 200 years ago. That racially driven chattel slavery that saw human beings as, as, as property and, and did all kinds of reprehensible things. Now, I'm not saying that first century slavery was glorious. It was still ripe for abuse and exploitation, but it was a little different. And so he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter writes to slaves, submit and subvert. Now, it's easy to submit to a kind and gentle master, but he says to submit even to the unjust ones. And if you do that and are treated wrongly, even when you do good, he says two times, this is a gracious thing. Not just that this is a good thing, but this is a gracious thing. What does he mean by that? He means very simply that it makes Jesus look good. They say it twice. It means that, uh, that, that the gracious thing, it actually embodies something about the grace of God to you in Jesus and puts it uniquely on display for others to see as well. What does it display? It displays the sacrifice and injustice that Jesus willingly endured for your sake. And in light of that, it honors God uniquely. It is a gracious thing. Now, let me just say this about slavery. The, the Bible, in, in particular the New Testament, does not take slavery on head on and condemn it uniformly. It actually subverts it and does more than probably any other document to eradicate slavery in the modern world. But not by attacking it directly, rather by saying to slaves and owners, people across all kinds of different racial and economic classes, you are equal in Christ. And when you come to Christ, those old systems no longer work very well. You actually are to relate to each other as brothers and sisters and equals. So that in, in a very real sense, like you could go to church and your church elder or leader or pastor could be a slave or a former slave. And that's just how we roll. And so if you're interested in how the Bible kind of undermines the entire institution, I actually preached a, a sermon series in the thread through Philemon, and that's one of the main themes there. You can go back and listen to that as well. But the Bible actually undermines it by giving us a completely different way of relating to each other. But he says, for the slave, when you suffer for doing good, it's actually a gracious thing because it, it, it puts on display the sacrifice of Jesus 
for other people. It displays it in such a beautiful way. It's a gracious thing. Now, how exactly do you do that? Well, for Peter, there was no greater example to look to than to Jesus himself. And so in the middle of all of these human institutions, one we'll look at again next week, we see now the example of Jesus in verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you examples so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You want to talk about suffering unjustly, Jesus is the gold standard. He gave us the perfect example of what this looks like so that we might walk in his steps. Now, Jesus is more than our example, but he's not less. He is more than our example in that he is our savior. He did it for us so that we don't have to do it perfectly. See, we we must understand this before we can see Jesus as our example. Otherwise, Jesus' example is crushing because we don't live up to it. But if we see that he did it for us so that we are imperfect and embrace what he has done for us, then we see in him an example of how to truly live, how to live the good life, even in a broken and fallen world. And we read that he was perfect. He committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth, but he was condemned. He was reviled. And when, he did, when, when that happened, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he, he didn't threaten, he didn't open his mouth, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We actually read this story take place in real time in John chapter 18. When Peter is before, or I'm sorry, when, when Jesus is before Pilate, and they're interacting, and Pilate's like, so who exactly are you? And Jesus freaks him out. Listen to this. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world, delivered over to the Jews. Kingdom were of this world. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And he scares Pilate out of his mind. (laughs) And Pilate spends the rest of the time trying to free him, only to cave to political pressure from the people who, who accuse him of not being Caesar's friend. See, Jesus is truly perfect, and yet he's slandered. He's mocked, he's reviled, and he's beaten. But in that moment, even though he possesses all the power that one would need, he does not retaliate, he does not threaten back. But what does he do? We read, he, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He entrusts himself to the verdict of the Father. There will be times in your life, and there may have already been times in your life, where you are slandered and you cannot defend yourself without sounding defensive. There will be times where you will be unjustly treated and you have no recourse. There are times where where you may have acted for the good and acted with your integrity intact, 
and others will attack you anyway. And to say any word on your own behalf just sounds defensive. In that moment, Jesus gives us a beautiful example of what to do. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Know that God sees and he cares and he'll justify you one day. He'll set the record straight one day. I can't tell you how much this verse has ministered to me personally over the years. You know, when you just feel trapped and you, you know that people believe lies about you, but you can't say anything, whether it's because you're under authority and, and no one will listen, or you're in authority and we've so swung the pendulum the other way where we just assume everybody's guilty until proven innocent, to see in Jesus the perfect example of saying, it's no big deal, God knows, and he'll justify me. I hope you don't need that but my guess is you probably will at some point in your life. Jesus is your Savior who did it perfectly, but he's also your example to follow. And you know what? God's verdict is really the only one that matters. Really. Because, if, because what God says about you, and it's already secure, it, it actually doesn't matter what others say about you. That, my friends, is freedom. Freedom to serve and to pursue the good, even if it costs you something. It is a gracious thing to do. This gracious thing was perfectly demonstrated in Jesus' own life. The last two verses are, are so beautiful and poetic. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. For you were like straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is beautiful. This is poetic. This is glorious. This is, we're not the gospel, the good news. But here's the thing. We're, we're not, if we're honest, we're not just victims of injustice. We're not just victims of unjust systems and institutions and authorities. We're actually part of them and perpetrators as well. Buying a shirt on sale that costs you $2 that was made in a sweatshop by teenage girls making pennies a day. You're part of a system. Over-consuming resources while others barely have any. We're part of a system that is broken. And so what hope do we have in the complexity of this life? Much. Jesus bore his sin, our sins in his body on the tree even the ones that we're not even fully aware of, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. He suffered and died unjustly so that we might once and for all be set free from our sins so that we can devote our lives to righteousness and justice. So that we would willingly suffer as he did, devoting ourselves to good works. We were like straying sheep that the shepherd found so in light of that, we're called to submission and subversion to his kingdom and toward governments. Isn't it interesting that while the command is given here to submit, the emphasis to our lives is placed upon devoting ourselves to doing good. That's what subversion looks like. Being slavishly aligned with the good 
and with God's values. This is Jesus' goal and design all along. Paul writes in Titus chapter 2, verse 14, He, Jesus, gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed or zealous for doing good works, good deeds. So as I close, I just want to ask a few questions of you, maybe some things to wrestle through. Is God calling you to pursue good works by serving in government? If so, in what way? Maybe government employment, like building roads and infrastructure. Maybe political office and providing leadership. Maybe military service. Maybe law enforcement. You want to talk about a hard career right now? Doing that justly? But what do we need more than ever? People doing that righteously? Is God calling you maybe to pursue a calling in public service? If so, that is a high and a holy calling that your Christian discipleship demands much of you from. And four, second, are you in a position of authority? Maybe you're a boss at work, maybe you own a company, maybe you're a teacher or a professor, but in some way you have authority. How are you using that authority? And is it a, is it a blessed thing to be under your authority? Do you bring about more blessing or curse? Jesus has some things to say about that. That's part of your discipleship, how you live there and represent his kingdom. Third, if you find yourself at a job where you are being unjustly treated, there are parallels here and there are not parallels here. How can you be both submissive and subversive there? Well, unlike the first century slave, you should probably ask the question, do I need to stay? Because you are free. You may leave, or you may stay and submit and subvert to do the good, but you are free one way or another. And if you find yourself under unjust authority, is there a way in which you can act which, like these slaves, is a gracious thing that demonstrates the beauty of the gospel? Finally, what governing authority do you least appreciate submitting yourself to? We all have them. Is it the IRS? The president, the neighborhood association, local ordinances. My current one is building codes and permits. I don't really like that one very much, but it's there. And you know what? Submission isn't submission if you agree. It's easy. It's when you don't agree and there's authority over you that our Christian discipleship demands something of us. Now, there is much to be said and much to be discussed. I invite you to do so in your city groups this week because this is hard to work out all the implications in a one-sided monologue, isn't it? And yet, the way in which we respond to and use authority has incredible power to display the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it's so practically helpful and instructive. Thank you, Jesus, that you bore our sins in your body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by your wounds we are healed thank you that while we were straying like sheep you the good shepherd pursued us and now we're the overseer of our souls may we make much of you in our vocational lives in Jesus name amen